More Questions Than Answers with Julie Panessi, brought to you by the Democracy Fund. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you. Bienvenue. Welcome. Felcha. Pella. Vocoso. Whether in French, Norwegian, Gaelic, Yiddish, or Japanese, nearly every language, maybe every language, I'm not sure, has a way of saying welcome, a word that comes from the old English words for pleasure and to come. The idea being that there is pleasure in coming together, whether to accept a stranger into our home, to celebrate an important milestone, or to signal the start of an event. But coming together and the pleasure we take from it is under attack these days. It has been for two years. And that's no small thing. When our governments lock us down, mandate us, they don't just restrict our freedom of movement. They limit our ability to exchange ideas and to practice our humanity as we do so. In gathering together, we learn how to be respectful, empathetic, and curious, how to criticize an idea without hating the person who delivers it. Can you imagine? A novel idea, and how to ask good questions and then listen openly for answers. The outcomes are often unexpected, which is exactly how it should be. When was the last time you had a conversation where you made it very clear that the other person's ideas are sacred, that you will treat them as such, and that your life might be improved by hearing them? Such a simple skill, but one that's bordering on extinction, I fear. Conversations with your family at the dinner table, a friend over coffee, or dare I say, lively public debate, require and create a more courageous conversation. And they demand humility and a willingness to be vulnerable. Over the last two years, mandates have not just been about preventing the transmission of a virus, but preventing the gathering of people who might discuss ideas that are an ideological threat to the narrative. One month ago, our Prime Minister invoked the Emergencies Act, not because of the threat of physical violence, but because the expression of what he called unacceptable views was considered violence itself. One month ago, our country almost fell apart, and then it all just went away as though nothing of significance happened, leaving a surreal, eerie kind of vacuum in its place. I think that many, maybe many of you here today, feel a sense of relief that this is the calm after a terrifying storm. But I think it's much more likely to be the calm between two storms, or perhaps a calm before a superstorm. There are currently five bills, including C-10 and C-36, in play that aim to limit freedom of expression, 
ushering us into a new era of censored thought and speech, and quite likely the most severe restrictions of civil liberties that our country has ever known. An era in which our charter right to freedom of expression will be protected only if we express the right ideas. Use it or lose it, they say. It is more important than ever to do what we can while we can to keep these ideas flowing and the channels of communication open and to practice the art of conversation. The 19th century utilitarian philosopher John Stuart Mill warned us about the harms of censorship. He wrote, the peculiar evil of silencing the expression of an opinion is that it robs the human race. If the opinion is right, they are deprived of the opportunity of exchanging error for truth. If wrong, they lose the clearer perception of truth produced by its collision with error. He wrote that in On Liberty in 1859, and it just seems like it rings so true today. This is why organizations like the Democracy Fund and evenings like this are, are just so incredibly important. The mandate of the TDF is pretty simple. We think our constitution and our charter in particular matter. Though our governments and mainstream media are treating them like just a suggestion or a relic of the past, we believe they are essential to who we are. They outline our obligations to one another and they can't be obliterated by one act of government at one moment in history. But to keep these documents alive, we have to keep their values and we have to live their values every day. At TDF, we're doing this in a number of different ways. We have, um, we're trying to advance public education by conducting interviews and writing, and, and we're establishing a student journalism conference. We're defending people's rights legally. Just this week, one of our lawyers is in court in Ottawa defending the rights of peaceful protesters, who are the rights that were violated during the convoy protests. And by publishing a book, oh, this is the shameless plug time. <laughs> but, but, you know, in all seriousness, I do, when I was writing this book, I felt a bit like I was doing something naughty. I, I've never felt that in my life, like writing something or saying something was wrong, that it was illegal. Um, and, and I certainly don't want to stand by while we create a world in which that or worse is what our children will be living with, you know. And, and the Democracy Fund has created a space where it's possible to support work like that. Um, we've sent this book to people all over the world. I've sent it to someone in Norway and people in Australia, and it's just amazing to me that we're still able to do that. We're still able to fight and, and make the exchange of ideas possible. And then, of course, we host events like this uh, where we're able to um, talk about ideas and in a space where we're able to create the freedom to have conversations where we exchange ideas that are so much more important than the particular things we say. The fact that we respect each other and, and stay with the conversation um, even when we disagree. And so on that note, it's with great pleasure that I introduce our first guest tonight, Dennis Prager.
Dennis Prager is one of America's most respected thinkers, writers, and speakers. He has a nationally syndicated talk show host, which is heard on nearly 400 affiliate stations. He is the founder of Prager University, or PragerU, which you may have heard of, which is the most viewed, this is unbelievable to me, this is the most viewed conservative video site in the world with a billion views a year, and very encouragingly, more than half of those are by people under 35. He's also something of a renaissance man. He is a New York Times best-selling author of nine books on subjects as varied as religion, happiness, morality, Islam, and America. And his book, The Rational Bible, was the number one best-selling non-fiction book in the US. He has lectured on every continent and regularly takes hundreds of listeners on trips to Israel, Antarctica, West Africa, Vietnam, and the Panama Canal. And whenever he has a little downtime, apparently, he conducts symphony orchestras, including that of the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. <laughs> Dennis Prager is, I believe, borderline offensively multi-talented, <laughs> but we are very, very, um, very grateful that he's sharing his time and his insight and his respect for conversation uh, with us today. I've heard it said that when Dennis Prager speaks, uh, America listens, and um, I'm just so delighted to welcome Dennis Prager. <laughs> There we go. <laughs> Dennis, thank you so much for joining us tonight. It's a real honor and a pleasure. And I really meant that when I said that I think having continuing to have conversations, even when they're under threat, or especially when they're under threat, is so important. But that's a two-way street. You need other people to agree to have those conversations with you. So thank you so very much. Um, I want to start by asking you, as someone looking from the outside, geographically anyway, what do you think about what's going on in Canada right now, or what's been going on over the last couple of years or couple of months especially? We seem to be in this era of government overreach and the suppression of rights like we, we've maybe never seen or certainly haven't seen in, in my lifetime anyway. And I remember reading at the end of February, I think you wrote that you compared Canada to Cuba and that we are more like Cuba than maybe any other free nation right now. Um, <laughs> I think you also wrote that it doesn't seem as though many Canadians care, that to, according to a recent poll, two-thirds of Canadians supported uh, Justin Trudeau in invoking the Emergencies Act. And so I wanted to ask you, you know, was your comparison between Canada and Cuba hyperbole? Were you exaggerating? Or, or do you think we're in real trouble? Well, first, let me just say to all of you and, and to you, of course, I'm honored to be with you. I wish I could be with you in person. Canada won't let me in. 
Uh, I'm wanted for many crimes, the worst of which is I'm not inoculated or I'm not vaccinated. I uh, actually had COVID. My antibodies are stronger, being natural antibodies. <laughs> we, we live in, in, a, in the, an anti-science, anti-reason, anti-liberty age. By people who claim to care about science and reason, they don't claim to care about liberty, so I couldn't add that one. As to your question, I can't tell you how sad I am. I have, uh, uh, I have uh, compared to most Americans, a lot of knowledge about Canada. I, first of all, I've spoken in all your provinces, except Prince Edward Island. But uh, I think that, that's, that'll be a tough one. I'm not sure many people get invited to lecture at, in, on Prince Edward Island. But uh, I have an affection for Canada. So to watch what has happened and for me to write that you're veering toward uh, being like Cuba in terms of liberty uh, was not hyperbole. Uh, I, I fear for, for all of the Western world and uh, the, the prime minister of New Zealand, which has also gone off the deep end, the English uh, language countries uh, have really been disappointing. Uh, the, I, I play on my radio show Oh, probably every other week. The Prime Minister of New Zealand saying as follows, if you hear anything and it doesn't come from the government, it is not true. Now that is exactly what they would say in Cuba. That is exactly what they said uh, in the Soviet Union, which is my field of study. I, that's how I understand. I have, I have totalitarian antennae. I was in the Soviet Union a number of times. I was in East Europe many times when it was under communism. I know Russian. I, that was my field of study at the Russian Institute at Columbia University. And I, I am watching us veering in that direction. The notion that the only truth you will hear from the, is from the government uh, is one of the scariest possible statements a government leader can ever say, especially when they tell you a lot of lies. So not only was it scary, it wasn't even true. The, nearly every truth that I have learned in the last two years has not come from the American government. It has been the opposite of what the American government has said. However, and this, this obviously is significant, I'm very disappointed in my own country as well, but we have our system of states so that you could go to a free state in the midst of all this, let's say Florida. When I went to Florida, I wrote uh, in my weekly column from which you quoted, I wrote at the time that when I, when I went from California where I'm speaking to you from now where I live, when I went from California to Florida, I, I felt as I did when I went uh, to uh, Austria from, uh, uh, from Bulgaria or, or, uh, or uh, Hungary or Czechoslovakia, as it was known then. In other words, I went from unfree communist country to a free country, in that case, Austria, because it was right in the middle and the closest for me to, to stop in and then continue my travels through Eastern Europe. That is how I felt going from Florida to California, going from Austria to a communist country in Eastern Europe. So uh, we have, at least in America, some things you don't have. Well, we, I know, of course, you have provinces, 
but the, the, the tradition of state power is greater in our country. And so uh, Governor DeSantis could basically do what he wants uh, 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 to, a, to a certain extent. He couldn't control airports or airplanes. That's, that's the national government. We also have an extremely robust counterculture. Uh, talk radio is probably the biggest single one because of the vast audiences that it has, larger than Fox, larger than any other uh, institution in the, in the United States. Uh, I've been part of it for exactly 40 years. And so obviously uh, I, I know what it's about when we tell millions, tens of millions of people, not any one of us, but the, the accumulated talk show hosts, tens of millions of Americans hear an alternative understanding to the one that the left provides. One more point, and I'm sorry for taking so much time in my response, but one more point. I learned something, not only in the last two years, a little earlier than that, but it's been a, it's been a, a revelation uh, in my life. The, the, the human being does not yearn to be free. Some people do, you do, the people in this audience do, Ezra Levant does, Amalep Bunobi does, whom you'll hear from. Uh, there are people who yearn to be free. Most people do not yearn to be free. They yearn to be taken care of. And that is the reason that communism and other forms of leftism are so appealing. What they say is, you give us your soul, you give us your liberty, and we will take care of you. We will give you free health care. We will give you free education. We will give you free lunches. We will give you free daycare. People don't understand nothing is free. Literally nothing is free. You pay a price when you get all those freedoms, all those free things from the government. You lose your freedom. That's the trade-off, and people are very happy to make that trade. Thank, thank you so much for that, and there's so much there to unpack. Uh, let me pick one, maybe the last point, which I think is maybe my favorite or the one that's most intriguing, this idea that there are, uh, among all the ways, we, we talked about segregation tonight, we've been talking about it for the last two years, but one way to distinguish between types of people is to say there are some who crave deeply as part of their identity to be free and others who just don't seem by nature to care about that and want to be taken care of. It is, has there been a shift in that? Has that always been true? It feels to me like the bulk of people are in that second group right now. So is, is that a difference from 100 years ago, 1,000 years ago, or, or even just a few years ago? Um, and g given where we're at, can that be changed? Can that be manipulated? Can people be educated to understand the difference, to recognize that they belong to one of those groups over the other? And, and can those two groups of people talk to each other? Can they move forward together? I don't think it's new. Uh, it's new in the United States, that I can tell you. In the United States, uh, sweet land of liberty, that's in our national anthem. On the other hand, you have in your national anthem, glorious and free. So <laughs> you extol freedom in your national anthem too. Uh, but uh, this country in the United States 
that's why we got the Statue of Liberty from France. They didn't give it to any other country. They gave it to the freest country uh, ever devised because uh, the, this, the, one of the mottos of, the, of one of the founders, Patrick Henry, was give me liberty or give me death. The iconic symbol of the American Revolution is the Liberty Bell. It has a verse from the Bible on it. That's all it has on it is one verse from the Bible. You shall proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants from the third book of the Bible, Leviticus. It's amazing that the founders knew Leviticus. I bet the average college student in the United States or Canada could not, could not identify what Leviticus is. They might think it was a horse that raced it and came in third. Uh, they, they, people don't know any of this. This is new in the United States. Contempt for freedom is new. And that was produced by our colleges and now by our high schools and elementary schools. Uh, you are more likely to value freedom if, if you didn't go to college than if you did. It is not possible to overstate the destructive nature of college education on, uh, on people who go there. Uh, every poll shows that the higher your level of education, in other words, going through graduate school, the more you supported the lockdowns. So you value liberty less the more you are quote unquote educated. And I say quote unquote because it's not education, it's indoctrination. So where, where are they at crossroads? Uh, and I, I, I must say, I, I make no prediction. I'm often asked if I'm an optimist or a pessimist, and my answer has been, I have uh, no use for either optimism or pessimism because they're both excuses not to fight. The optimist doesn't fight because he thinks everything will turn out well. The pessimist doesn't fight because he thinks everything will turn out lousy. So I have no interest, I, I, I don't know what the future is. I only know that I have to fight. And I, I wish more Americans felt that and I obviously f wish more Canadians did. That's It's uh, very interesting to hear you talk about the, the indoctrination at, at colleges and universities. So I spent a long time in academia and I don't think I've quite realized the extent to which that was happening until I got on the outside of it, look, looking back in. But, but one thing I have noticed, I mean, I started teaching in, oh, uh, sort of 2000 and, and, and that over that 20 years, is that um, early on, and then even in the 90s when I was an undergraduate student, there was lively debate in the classroom. There was individuality, there was disagreement, there was um, a, a less concern for what other people think. There was more individuality of thought. Ethics classes were rowdy, hard to control uh, environments of lively debate. And my biggest challenge later, in, you know, in the sort of late 2000s, um, it was, and then most recently a couple of years ago, was just trying to get any kind of energy going, any kind of enthusiasm in an idea. Because in order to have debate, you have to disagree with the other person, and that requires a kind of courage and, and vulnerability. And so there seems to be a lot of talk lately, and I certainly do a lot of thinking about compliance and whether that's good. I never would have thought that it was. Compliance to me always means going along with something that you don't really agree with or that you don't really believe in your heart. 
Um, and, and, and that disagreement, I always felt, was a social good. But now it seems to me that the opposite is becoming true, that, that you are a good citizen to the degree that you comply and social, uh, social um, or disagreement is not only not a social good, but it's a threat and we need to identify it and cut it out. Um, what do you think? Do you think? Do you think that we lose something in a democracy when we lose disagreement? Do we need to keep disagreement in order to have a thriving democracy? I have offered on my radio show tens of thousands of dollars uh, to any, uh, any New York Times left-wing opinion writer, which is 99% of their opinion writers, or Washington Post to debate me they could choose the place, they could choose the moderator, they could choose the audience. It doesn't matter to me. But they don't debate. It is a very important thing to understand, and this is where I think I have a contribution to make because I know the left pretty much as well as I know my own family. There is no instance in the history of the left from Vladimir Lenin to where I attended Columbia University today where the left is in power and allows disagreement. There is, no, there is no instance of that. That's a pretty broad statement. Liberals and conservatives do welcome dissent. Leftists do not. I draw, obviously, a distinction between leftism and liberalism. Tragically, liberals vote left, but liberalism is not leftism. But wherever the left is in power, it stifles dissent. There is no exception in the last 100 years. This is so, so interesting to me because it seems like we've been playing pretty fast and loose with the term liberal. Uh, coming from a, a political philosophy and ethics background, classical liberal means one thing, and, it, and, and when you start reading into that literature, you, you, you encounter the word freedom pretty quickly. So classical liberals tend to be very interested in freedom. But now, of course, in our country anyway, our liberal government is anything but, right? We're seeing censorship all over right. the place and lockdowns and all of that. Um, but it's interesting that you're making this distinction, right, not between liberals and conservatives, but between left and right. Um, what, what is that difference? Between liberal and left? No, between, okay, no, between I'll, left I'll give and you right. A few, left I'll, and right. I'll give you Wait, so you want differences between left and right or left and liberal? Left and right. What is it that fundamentally defines people who fall into one, one end of the spectrum or the other? Liberty. It's exactly what uh, this, uh, this evening is about. They, they, it's not, that's not one of their values. Uh, the, it, it, it all comes down to that in the final analysis. And, and the biggest one of all is free speech. The, the, there is, without that liberty, other liber what, what other liberties matter compared to the, the ability to, to speak freely, to write freely? This is what gives the human being dignity, that you are entitled to your opinion, even if it's, even if it's an awful opinion. I'll give, you, I'll give you an example of that. So in the United States, uh, according to uh, Gallup and according to Pew, the two of the biggest pollsters, between 40 and 50% of young Americans, that is college age Americans, uh, do not believe in free speech for hate speech. 
To give you an idea of how bad that is, they don't even understand that the whole point of free speech is for what you do consider hate speech. Nobody is against free speech for love speech. So it, it, it's, a, it, it's an actually, it's an idiotic position. I believe in free speech except for hate speech. It, 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 is, it means I don't believe in free speech. So I'll give you an example. So uh, I, I am a, a Jew. I am, a, in fact, a religious Jew. I, have, I taught Jewish history at the City University of New York. It was my, my first job. And I, uh, I obviously taught the Holocaust. I think people who deny the Holocaust are, 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 are truly the scum of the earth. However, in the United States, you are allowed to deny the Holocaust. In no European country are you allowed to. And that, that's, that's it. I don't know the state of this issue in Canada, to be honest, uh, but I know that in Europe, you're not allowed to. Uh, if you want to, you have the freedom to say the most vile things, because once I curb that freedom, there is no end to the freedoms of speech that I will curb. And that is exactly what has happened. Uh, the, the, the censorship in my country is unprecedented, and in your country, unprecedented. That just to say ivermectin might help against uh, against uh, a COVID might help you uh, as a prophylactic or as a therapeutic. You you are not only are you uh, censored by YouTube, by by Facebook, by Instagram, by Google. You might lose if you are a doctor who says that. You might lose your your ability to practice medicine. And uh, I, just for the record, I took ivermectin for over a year. It is one of the safest drugs on earth, along with hydro hydroxychloroquine. There was no doubt in my mind that when I finally did get COVID, it was so mild because I had been taking ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. Yet to say anything good about those drugs, according to the New York Times, you, you are a, a fraud if you say that because Ivermectin is a horse dewormer. That is the way they characterize it in the New York Times, which has essentially become almost indistinguishable from the role, plays the role that Pravda played in the Soviet Union. It is the mouthpiece of the left, and that is all it is. And by the way, that's true for the CBC. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, to keep, uh, there's so many different directions we could go in here, but uh, I want to ask your opinion about something that I feel like I'm hearing all over the place these days, which is the claim, but government is essentially good. <laughs> what do you think? Government is essentially good? Essentially oh, good. It could not yes. possibly err, could not possibly right. not well, have your best okay. interests. So uh, everybody knows, except for some crackpot anarchist, and I never met one, uh, everybody knows you need government. The, the, the issue is how big a government. The bigger the government, the smaller the citizen. It's a phrase I came up with many years ago, and uh, it, it is a truism. But I would just like to offer this uh, little insight. All of the genocides of the 20th century, the most genocidal century in human history, Every single one, except the Hutus massacre of Tutsis in Rwanda, every single one 
whether it was Cambodia or the Soviet Union or Ukraine in, in the, the horrible induced Holodomor, the, the induced famine by Stalin, Mao's slaughter of 60,000 or what, uh, 60 million, excuse me, whatever the number is between 40 and 80 million, and everywhere else, every single genocide was, and of course the Holocaust, was made possible by big government. You need big government to do great evil. That about says it. <laughs> we're um, we're going to bring them all in a minute, but but let me just ask you. I mean, given where we're at, are there any leaders left that we can trust? Is there anyone coming up the ranks who who might be able to to, to reverse this situation? And if there is such a person, does that person have any chance of winning in our current cultural environment? Uh, actually, the greatest uh, force for freedom in the, in the last few months have been Canadian truckers. You have no idea the impact that the Canadian truckers made in America and uh, in, in much of the rest of the world. These, these people are living legends. They don't even know it. But I just thought I'd tell you this from California, pretty far away from Ottawa. So maybe they one of them will will <laughs> will will run in in the next race. It seems like you know in our in our house we have a few um, we have a few conservative MPs. We have a few even uh, liberal MPs who have been questioning their own government. Um, but one wonders. It's hard not to be skeptical these days. It's hard to imagine a situation in which they won't turn out to be just as. Um, untrustworthy as the ones that we have elected in the past. And so the, 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 the future right. political situation feels very unstable to, to me anyway. I think if your parliament only consisted of Canadian truckers, your country would have a renaissance. so much let's bring let's bring Amala into the conversation if we can and see what some of her thoughts are so um 20 year old or maybe she's 21 now. <laughs> 20 are you 21 Amala I'm, I'm 21 now You're 21 <laughs> so wait till you hear the wisdom coming from Amala and she's 21 she's less than half my age. <laughs> um, she is a self-described left-wing activist turned conservative influencer with a very unique story. The daughter of a Nigerian immigrant, she was raised by a far-left mother of three, but underwent a massive ideological transformation culminating in embracing conservatism. And if you haven't done so, if you haven't had the chance to do this, uh, after tonight, I would encourage you to take a look at her video. It's part of the PragerU Stories of Us video series called Why I Left My Job as a Leftist Organizer. I watched it, Amala. I, I didn't know you very well, and I watched your video, and I just thought uh, your story is so interesting and the way you explained um, how that transformation worked was so interesting. So Damala is deeply inspired by economist, social theorist, and writer Thomas Sowell, and a member of Generation Z. 
<laughs> and Amala now brings her message on everything from gender politics to victim culture and many other things, I think, to hundreds of thousands of followers on TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter, and probably other platforms I've not even heard of, I imagine. She is now <laughs> PragerU ambassador and a host of Will and Amala Live. Um, Amala, thank you so much. I, I heard you were permanently banned, is that right, from TikTok, which in itself suggests to me there must be something very interesting about you. So, <laughs> uh, it's an ongoing saga with welcome. me and TikTok. Uh, we know it's the CCP app, so I, the, the odds were not in my favor to begin with. I've been permanently banned three times on the platform now, which each time I view as a badge of honor. And as of, as of late, we are back on the platform and continuing to make content. So we're doing good. <laughs> How do you get permanently banned three times? Didn't the one time stick? Wasn't that good enough? <laughs> You know, you would think, but you really can't hold me down. Every time I get banned from this app, I write them a message saying, doesn't your app claim to be upholding black voices? And immediately the account goes back up. <laughs> <laughs> well, Amal, I was gonna start somewhere, somewhere else, but um, on that topic, what is a black voice in your mind? You know, that's a great question. I personally do not think uh, race says anything about the sort of voice or opinion that you should have. Uh, from a very young age, I got the opposite message that by virtue of being born black and female, that there were certain opinions that coincided with that reality. And it wasn't until I was around 17 or 18 that I started to realize, wow, I, I've truly been tricked into believing this identity politics feature of our society, that something is supposed to be linked to the skin color that I have and that I can judge other people and sort of get they looked. You can imagine that sort of brainwashing sets in very, very deeply. It's It almost feels just like a visceral thing uh, that is, is tied to the way that you think and the way that you view the world. And luckily now I can say that being a black voice means absolutely nothing. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was about the best answer I could imagine. <laughs> It's interesting, you know, um, thinking about the idea of a skin color voice, but, but this language is everywhere, right? This language of, uh, it's the language of polarities and the language of binary. I, I think in your video, uh, you talked about, you know, being half white and half black and you need to identify that there's a, this is what you're told, right? That you need to identify mm -hmm. a difference between those things and that you need to value one and that means hating the other right, that you have to get yourself into right. one of the camps so over another. But I, I, it seems to me that that, uh, that, pol that sort of polar polarity system, that polarizing, it's not just happening in racial uh, discussions, right? I mean, we see it with the, the COVID situation and now we're you're either vaccinated or you're not. And by the way, that's not just an immunological status, that means something about what you believe and the ideas you have and the kind of person that you are, right? This kind of polarization, where do you think that came from? Or, I mean, I asked a similar question of Dennis, mm -hmm. right? Where do these things come from? Or have we just always had these ideas and for some reason they're kind of bubbling to the surface now? Oof, uh, interesting question. I mean, I think just as being, by virtue of being born human beings, we sort of have this tribalistic feeling about ourselves that we want to belong to a group, we want to be part of that. And I think this new 
wokest identity politics driven or vaccine status driven way of viewing things is just an exploitation of that tribalism that we often feel and I even feel it today even though I actively fight against that feeling uh, we've exploited it because it, that tribalism used to be tied to good values we wanted to be part of a group of people that shared our love for country that shared our love for freedom or, or free speech or not infringing on other people's rights but now we've attached that tribalism to things like skin color to things like vaccine status to things like gender and we we view one group as being wholly virtuous the vaccinated in in our both of our countries uh, tend to be the the virtuous types uh the same with people of color being more virtuous than the white people who are born with inherent racist and unconscious uh bias as they say and the same thing can be seen uh, with the gender binary women being seen as virtuous and men carrying this toxic mas masculinity it seems that nearly every facet of our society uh, has been infiltrated and they found a way to divide it and then they hone in on that tribalistic feeling that we all have and separate us into groups and create uh, a division amongst them uh, regarding moral moral truths as they claim it's it's so interesting you know it seems to me that uh, one of the questions that we've been struggling with for hundreds of years, maybe our whole existence, and, and, and both of you feel free to weigh in on this, but is this question about what, what matters and what doesn't, right? Um, do, does race matter? Does gender matter? Does your vaccination status matter? Do your ideas matter? Mm -hmm. Does your virtue matter? We, like, how do we figure out? This seems to be something about which we just intractably disagree. We, we can't seem to figure this out amongst ourselves right now. We thought we had these foundational documents, our, our constitutions, Canada, our Charter of Rights and Freedoms. It seems to me like those were kind of a trying to work out how we would agree about these things. And then we would build our laws and our countries and our policies and our families and our lives on those fundamental ideas. But now it seems like what's coming to light is that we can't agree about these fundamental things, about what matters, right? So what is your, what is your take on it? How do we figure out what matters and what doesn't? Dennis, I'll let you lead the way. You're you're my senior. You can go first on you're this one. You're just gonna let him. You're, you're gonna let him take all the hard questions, right? <laughs> Get back on here. Okay. Uh, what matters? I'll tell you exactly what matters. There's only one division among human beings that matters, and uh, this is uh, something I read in high school. It's one of the, the the book after the Bible that most influenced me, *Man's Search for Meaning* by Viktor Frankl. This was a man who went through uh, uh, Auschwitz and other uh, Nazi camps. He was a psycho, an Austrian Jewish psychoanalyst. And he wrote about uh, his, uh, his observations about life as a result of that experience. Members of his family uh, murdered by the Nazis. And at the end, he, he was asked, uh, do you hate the German race? It was a term that they often used then instead of nation or ethnicity. Do you hate the German race? And this was his answer. No, I don't. There are only two races, the decent and the indecent. That is the only division that matters. The moment you say race matters, you are a pure racist. There is nothing I know about a human being, certainly not about their decency or indecency when I know their race. I don't know their personality. I don't know their loves. I don't know their passions. I don't know their, their 
their heart. I don't know their character. I know nothing about a human being when I know their race. I know as much about a human being when I know their skin color as I do when I know their shoe size. Uh, the left is the purest form of racism that we have in the Western world today. Uh, the Ku Klux Klan and the left both agree that race matters. The rest of us have contempt for that notion which is purely racist. The only division that matters is decent and indecent. Amala, go ahead. Do you have thoughts? Yes, I, I will add something there. I, I think the, the leftist way of viewing the world as judging people based on their race and their gender and these sort of outfacing characteristics is the easier way to live life. And it's a way that people seek comfort in because you can simply look at somebody and, and make your, your prejudgments based on exactly what you see. It's a lot harder to look into a person and see what they value, see what they hold dear, see whether or not they are truly a good person with moral integrity. It's a lot, lot easier to be susceptible to something like leftism and the narrative around it is very emotional it, it takes advantage of your emotions and makes you feel that way i remember as a former leftist myself and a very very radical one i'll show everybody if you can see i have a black lives matter fist tattooed on my arm and i got that when i was 16. Oh. <laughs> so embarrassing but uh, it was because I thought there's no way I could possibly deviate from this narrative that I've been told because it attacks something in me that is just so emotional and it makes me feel so many things. Whereas actually looking into somebody and trying to find out whether or not there's moral goodness and what they value and whether or not they want to infringe on your rights is a lot harder task. It's so interesting, but so plausible to me because, uh, I mean, if what you're describing is true, one of the reasons why racism or focusing on gender or, or any other physical or easily recognizable you know, characteristic of a person, one reason why we're drawn to that as humans is because of the simplicity of it. I mean, engineers, I don't know if we have any engineers in the group, but do we? <laughs> well, you tell me if I get this wrong, but my understanding is that engineers focus on efficiency a lot, right? Efficiency mechanisms in, in, in manufacturing and things like that. And this sounds like an efficiency mechanism to me, right? We, we, we go through the world and we think, well, I'll just have this principle well, whereby I'll favor people who have this kind of skin color. And, and that means that I'll associate with them and I'll listen to them and I'll follow their cues and I'll invite them to dinner. And, and that's just a much easier way of, of getting along, right? Um, maybe so, maybe it is efficient, but then we lose a lot, we, we lose a lot, right? In that sort of efficiency. Uh, one thing I've been thinking a lot lately about is, I mean, how do we move through these differences? How and I feel like there's a, like a, you know, a, a, a sort of a, a book coming on here that someone needs to write. Like, how do you talk to a leftist, right? How do you have, how do you have a conversation with someone who doesn't agree with you about the, about what matters fundamentally? Ooh, I, I have a lot to say here because, you know, I, of, of course, I was that leftist that, that got broken through and uh, began to have those conversations. And at first, you know, I, I thought anybody who deviates from the narrative that I believe and the ideology that I believe is wrong and there's no way I'm going to listen to them. And I 
did meet oh, many conservatives in my time, or at least the ones that I was shown this sort of caricature of conservatism, where they're very hard and throwing facts in your face, and they don't care about your feelings, as we'll hear in many conservative circles. But it was truly the compassionate ones who looked at me and said, hey, I, I can see where with the information you've gathered, I can see where you landed and why you landed there. Here is why you're wrong. And when I go into discussions with leftists now, I sit back for most of it and I just ask questions. I make no statements, I make no assertions. I just say, okay, well, why is it that you believe that race is so important? Why is it that you think the genders are, are separated and treated differently? Please explain that for me. And you go into these conversations, not being combative, not trying to, to get the one up, but to truly understand why it is that they believe what they believe. When I was working for the left and, and falling for that narrative, a lot of my thinking was that conservatives don't even want to understand why we have these problems. They don't understand our struggles and they don't want to talk about it. They don't want to ask questions. They just want to make an assertion and leave. And now I recognize that in other leftists that I meet. I got protested at a university for my first ever speech at a university because I'm a very scary 21 year old. And I, I went up to the protesters and said, Hi, I see all your signs. They're talking about how PragerU is hateful, how I'm a racist, somehow a white supremacist, although I don't know how that's possible. And I said, can we just have a discussion here? And I showed them my tattoo. I talked to them about how I was a former activist myself and how I understand why they feel the way they feel. And I understand how sad it is to feel that way. And immediately some of the, the guardrails went down a little bit and they went, oh, she gets it. She actually is going to, to give a good faith argument and analysis for what it is that I believe. And I got some of those leftists to come into the, the talk that I was having and even get up for Q&A and come to the front of the line and speak. So I think it's a little bit more about compassion and empathy and admitting that, you know, there are reasons that people feel the way they feel. It's not just uh, idiocy and lunacy and brainwashing. Some people actually have a basis for their line of thought. Yeah, that's very interesting. So questions are less threatening in a way, maybe, maybe. Mm -hmm. my, I mean, my ex absolutely. I, that has not been my experience, but maybe I'm I'm not a good question asker because I have found <laughs> when when I I try to ask questions of people on the left, they get very defensive, and I haven't figured out yet if that's because mm -hmm. they don't have answers or if because they resent the questioning of the first principles, like the fundamental ideas, right? Because for them, these issues are settled and it's like it's heretical, right? It's like you're, you know, you're, you, it, it's, a, it's a kind of bad faith or like you're questioning the fundamental religion if you raise these kinds of questions. It's, um, yeah, I, but I'm, I'm glad to hear you're having success. I might have to take a cue <laughs> from you. But Hala, <laughs> I, I also wanna ask you about what it felt like, I mean, it seems to me we don't have a lot of changing of minds these days. Uh, most people mm. I know today believe what they believed a year ago or two years ago, and that there's be becoming kind of an entrenchment of, of, of positions, if anything. Um, but you- can I, uh, can, I, can, yeah. I, can I chime in for a sec? Absolutely. So, uh, yeah, thank you. So I, I, I love what Amala said, Amala said, and I, I, I would I would just offer this caveat. As I said earlier, uh, they don't debate us, they smear us. Mm. And I've offered, as I said, literally, I've offered tens of thousands of dollars to, to any of the left-wing columnists at the New York Times to debate me, or I give a whole list if they don't want to debate me. 
uh, I would have any New York Times columnist on my show in an hour. I would give them an hour. I would give all of them an hour. I would devote a week just to talking to New York Times columnists. But they would never have me publish on their page. They would never have me on any of their podcasts. They wouldn't have Amala on their podcasts. They, we do not live in a hermetically sealed intellectual world. They do. I subscribe to the New York Times, but they would not watch a PragerU video, let alone the a, a regular, the weekly five minutes that would be demanded of them. The, they don't. The, and by the way, this is a very important point that that I I know from the the few experiences I've had where I did have a debate. I always won the debates, and it's not because I'm a great debater. You don't have to be a great debater. Uh, to uh, to debate a leftist, you just you just have to know how to speak English and know your facts, and and the reason that we win and they don't debate us, is that we know all of their arguments and they know none of ours. They don't read us. They don't study under us. They don't hear us. We study under them from kindergarten through graduate school. We are exposed to them in, in, in every movie outside, well, now every movie, even uh, science fiction movies will have an obligatory left-wing uh, idea in it. We, we, you can't avoid left-wing ideas, but you can avoid non-left-wing ideas, and they do. So the, the notion of dialogue is terrific, but they don't believe in it. That um, <laughs> I, I mean, this is both quite plausible and quite horrifying to me because when you think about what's required in a democracy for citizens to exchange ideas and debate in order to work things out so that our representatives can hear what we say and hear what we want and then establish uh, legal principles on the basis of these things, it's quite horrifying if to think that Dis discussion and debate is in principle impossible, right? But I wonder, I mean, if that's what the left is doing, why are they doing it? What's the big payoff? They must, I mean, humans are fundamentally self-interested, I think, though we could debate about, we could debate that for a while, right? But even if we aren't perfectly self-interested, we do things for reasons, and we at least care about our interests to some extent. So why do they do this, right? Are their lives made so great by shutting out this voice, the voices on the right, the voices that care about freedom for all people? What's the big payoff, do you think? I mean, I'll, I'll chime in here and say, uh, when you are a leftist, it feels really, really virtuous. You, you do feel good at the end of the day doing what you're doing. And I woke up every single day looking for injustice because that gave me something to fight. It gives your life a sense of purpose, particularly being a member of Gen Z, where it seems like this entire generation is leading a life that is completely devoid of purpose. When you find somebody who goes, hey, there's a battle out there and, and you're one of the people who can fight it. And you know, you'll see in a lot of leftist circles, young people are leading 
charge on this. This is why you have young people like David Hogg from the Parkland shooting and Greta Thunberg. It gives these young people a struggle and a battle to have. And it does feel good at the end of the day, at the end of the day to do these things. Uh, what they fail to realize is really they're be, being used as pawns by these elites who truly do stand to gain everything from this, gain resources, gain uh, all of your freedoms, gain your civil liberties. And they don't truly get that point yet. And it was when I recognized that, that the, the, all the ideas that I believe sort of fell apart for me. But when you are in it, it does truly give your life a sense of purpose. That, that was great. That was just great. That's exactly right. In Frankel's book, he notes that the, uh, he, he is essentially the third explanation of what humans are motivated by. For Marx, it was economics. For Freud, it was sex. And for Frankel, it is meaning. And he's right. People want meaning more than they want anything else in life. And with the collapse of the Judeo-Christian religions, we have this secular hole, this gigantic Grand Canyon-like hole in, in, uh, in the secular world uh, that even many secular conservatives do not, do not recognize. But it is filled by the substitute isms, liberalism, and communism and leftism and wokeism and environmentalism and feminism. All these isms are substitute religions. They're secular religions. There is no irreligious human being on the face of the earth. You either have a, a, a Bible-based religion in the West or, or you have a secular religion, but there is nobody without religion. You cannot live that way. You go crazy. You cannot wake up and think it is all meaningless. And I have an equation that uh, all of this has been produced by a terrible trio, boredom, secularism, and affluence. Those three things produce terrible things. Uh, uh, take the environmentalist movement, which is crushing uh, the West right now, uh, because uh, it's so obvious the inflation, certainly in the United States, is, is a direct result of America in one year going from a surplus of energy to a dearth of energy, and depending on wonderful places like potentially Iran and Venezuela and Saudi Arabia for its oil. Uh, it's because these people, the environmentalist movement is overwhelmingly very wealthy, uh, bored, secular human beings. And what could give you, as Amala pointed out, what can give you at the end of the day, as she, as she said, more satisfaction than thinking you are saving the world. And that's what they believe. And that is why it is okay to destroy the world on your way to saving it. They, and, and the proof that they want to restructure the world, it isn't even about the environment, is that they oppose nuclear power. Nuclear power could solve the entire problem of getting rid of fossil fuels almost overnight. And yet they're not for it because they don't want a solution. What they want is a utopian dream of everything being solar and, uh, and wind as the power. Why this romantic notion has taken place is another question. But that's all it is. It's I will find meaning. Why are there so many race hoaxes in the United States? The, the, the vast majority of times that the N-word is on, on a dorm door or a noose is in a dorm, in a college dorm, 
or, or uh, there is uh, so, some other graffiti that is anti-Black. Uh, anti the great majority of cases, it was done by a Black, just like the most famous one, Jussie Smollett. Why? Because there's so little racism in the United States, they have to manufacture it. This gives them meaning. Did any Jew manufacturer an anti-Semitic hoax in Germany in the 1930s? Of course not. You didn't need hoaxes. There was so much anti-Semitism. It's all made up. The entire world of the left is made up. And it is done so because of the vacuum created in a post-Christian world. And I'm a Jew saying this. And just a note here on the whole Justice Smollett thing, he's just been ordered to be released from, from jail here in the United States. So, so that's how we treat that, people who Himala, create can you say that again? Uh Yeah, so Jesse Smollett has, in breaking uh, about a few hours ago, has been ordered to be released from jail after serving less than a week of his sentence uh, here in the United States. So that's how we treat people who create race hoaxes. <laughs> it's... um. <laughs> yeah, so much going on here as well. I'm struck by what you both have to say about meaning and the struggle for meaning is a process. It's not an end state, right? So if we find a solution to that, you talk about the energy crisis. If we find a solution to that, we're no longer engaged in that process. We no longer have the ability to give ourselves meaning and purpose when we when we get up when we get up in the morning, right? So and, and I've been wondering about this over the last couple of years because whenever you present to someone information that should make them feel relieved, like they're stratified risk from COVID. You're not as at, at you know, risk that's as great as you thought you were. You, you'd think the response would be, gee, that's good news. I, maybe I haven't, maybe I've been worried for nothing. Maybe I can, you know, relax a little bit. Um, and it makes me wonder if we, we do like to live in a state of fear. And why would that be? Well, is it because fear... It, it gives us some kind of connection to other people. There are some drawbacks. It causes stress and anxiety, and it's not a terribly happy place to live. But, you know, it's, uh, it does give us some connection, something to talk about with other people. We can at least get up in the morning and put on our mask and feel like we've done something. We've, we, we've contributed to this process of finding meaning together, right? And, and then that brings me to this, this issue of collectivism, which is all, Dennis, all those isms you mentioned, they're all tribalistic group efforts, aren't they? Environmentalism and, and, and feminism and um, collectivism. I mean, what do you have to say about the value of collectivism? Is it essentially good, essentially bad? Do we need to dispense with it and get back to the thinking for ourselves? Not necessarily just about ourselves, but do we need to re-embrace critical thinking and stop you know, the group think. That's all I have to say about that. <laughs> the human being wants to bond with other human beings. So you either have healthy bonds or unhealthy bonds. It really boils down to that. Uh, I, I founded a synagogue in, in, in Los Angeles and the bonds I feel are so deep uh, every Saturday uh, that uh, I, I'm not leaving LA, even, even though it's, it's, it's been rendered in my lifetime, the most wonderful free, free place 
go west, young man. That was the great motto. Going to California when I was 25 years of age and I, and I fled New York. I, I, it was the most exciting day of my life when I first came to, uh, to Los Angeles. Now I, I, I'm on the road almost every week. I fly back to Los Angeles. There's no joy in me. The only joy is the wonderful people that are in my life through PragerU and, and through my religion uh, in particular. So uh, I, I love the idea of bonding with people. There were rotary clubs, there were bowling leagues. There were so many healthy things. De Tocqueville, the great French writer who came to America in the, mid, in the early and mid 19th century, he wrote that this was the great strength of Americans, that they had all these, all these ways of bonding with one another that had nothing to do with the government. And at the Democratic Party convention, I, I was there. I actually heard this. They announced the one thing that unites all Americans is government. They actually said that. You, you can get, I think you can hear the recording on YouTube. They ought to censor that. <laughs> but uh, that's what they believe. That's what unifies us. Politics. Politics should be the least important part of most people's lives the least important. And it is it, for the left, it is everything. That is, that is their meaning. So the issue is not collectivism. The issue is what bonds do you make? And the, these, we have healthy bonds, but they have been severed. Uh, religion, religion is held in contempt by the left. When, when it was announced at the beginning of, of this uh, seminar or this evening event that you're having, that th this pastor uh, is still in prison in Canada, still in prison because he had services. And by the way, let me add, as I, I, I wrote, sadly, the failure of most churches and synagogues, their obedience to irrational secular authority in shutting down for two years uh, is uh, shows you that uh, uh, e even, even many religious people have abandoned courage. So we're, we're, we've got issues, but evenings like this can clarify and uh, clarity is our friend. You know, we've been talking tonight a lot about influence and influence that is undue mostly and, and, and letting yourself be influenced by other people or influenced by your government. And we certainly seem to live in an era of influence. I mean, I could never have imagined we would have people who could make a living at being influencers. They make very good livings at being influencers, right? Um, but we don't, we are human and, and we don't live in a vacuum. I mean, what influences you, Amala? What are your big influences these days, if any? Oh my goodness, what are my influences? Well, one of them's right here. Uh, Dennis Prager was a massive influence for me and somebody who, who changed my life at one of its lowest moments when, you know, everything that I had ever learned had sort of broken and fallen apart. And as a young Gen Z person, I went to the internet <laughs> and I found, I found Dennis Prager. Thomas Sowell is another massive influence of mine and in his books and his outlook on life and critical thinking really changed the way that I view things. But above all else, I mean, people like my, my mother, even though she's a radical leftist, is a 
massive influence on me. She's extremely strong-willed and opinionated and stands strong in the things that she believes. And I've, I've gotten a lot of that from her as well as the leftism that I had in my earlier years. My, my grandparents and my family are a major influence on me because they are just the, the paragon of, of conservatism and building a strong relationship. So I, I lean a lot on my family and that family structure. And it's, it's something that I talk about a lot because it's devastating to look at the state of America, and I'm sure this is a problem in Canada as well, of people not building those family structures anymore, fathers not being in the homes, kids being devoid of influence. And I, I sort of struggled a lot with the idea of even being on social media for quite some time. TikTok was the the platform that I finally made the choice to hop on, the most atrocious of all pieces of social media. But I did so because I went onto social media and looked at all these different people who are influencers, really guiding this next generation of young leaders and thinkers uh, as they age. And it was just disgusting, the things that I was seeing, the the grooming, the political ideology, the lack of family values, the lack of love for country or, or anything that had to do with moral goodness. And I thought, well, if kids are going to be here anyways and essentially being raised by these platforms and by these different influencers, I might as well hop on and try to put forth what I think is a good message. So that's sort of what I what I work with every single day. And I use people like Dennis and, and Tom Soule and my family to to guide what I spout to be to be good and healthy. Thank you for that, Amala. Dennis, what about you? Well, I just want to, I would like to just add that I, I didn't mention in, in my collectivism answer, the family uh, and the, uh, the nuclear family is, is uh, held in contempt by the left. One of, uh, one of the questions I've gotten all of my life, because I've taught the Bible all of my life, and my Bible commentary was mentioned earlier, which is meant for people who have no religion so they'll understand the profundity of, uh, of these books. Genesis and Exodus are out and Deuteronomy is coming out later this year. And I, uh, I, I always asked at the, when I talk about the 10 commandments, well, what do you think the most important of the 10 commandments is? And at different times in my life, I've had different answers. And oddly enough, in the last few years, I've come to believe honor your father and mother might be because uh, it, uh, the first thing that every cult and every totalitarian movement seeks to do is undermine parental authority. In the state of Washington right now, uh, you, uh, by law, you do not have to tell parents at a school if a 14-year-old girl says she's a boy, you do not have to tell the parents that you're calling this person by a boy's name. Or even if the girl wants her breasts cut off, you do not have to tell the parents before she gets a mastectomy on her healthy breasts. This is, this, the undermining of parental authority is, uh, is, a, is the giveaway that you're dealing with a cult or a totalitarian movement. The Hitler Youth said, you, are, you do not owe your parents obedience, you owe it to Hitler. In the Soviet Union, it was Komsomol, the Communist Youth League. Your duty is to the party, not to your parents. And that is exactly what is happening in the West. Your duty is to the left and its values, not to your parents. As regards influence in my life, uh, 
you know, it, it's so it's so interesting that this uh, this whole issue, because so often people would say uh, during the Trump era, oh, my God, what what are kids going to look at? They look at the president and they see Donald Trump. And I remember for four years thinking what parent tells their kid, look to the president as your model. Do you think my parents said, Dennis, got to look at Lyndon Johnson? That's 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 your model. My male models as a male, I needed male models, was my father, my uncle, my older brother, my rabbis, the teachers that I respected. I had tons of male models. It never occurred to me for a minute to look to my president as a male model. By the way, do you want your kids to look at Justin Trudeau as their male model? Just a rhetorical question. So th th this notion is, uh, is, is so alien to me. But I was influenced uh, by my family uh, deeply and by my education deeply. Uh, I, I learned that uh, there is a right and a wrong that emanates in the final analysis from the transcendent source called God. Otherwise, right and wrong are opinions. I hope people have good opinions, but they remain opinions. And uh, I, I was deeply influenced by uh, the Bible, specifically the first five books, uh, the Torah. So uh, I, I, I had great influences in my life, e e even peers uh, in my life. I, I grew up in high, from high school with a man who's become the most prolific Jewish writer, Rabbi Joseph Telushkin. We were tremendous influences on each other from the age of 15. Uh, but the, I just want to end this by saying, you who are at this conference, the, the great works that are now available, the, the phenomenal books written by conservatives, the great, the great uh, uh, social media that are out there, uh, there is no dearth of wonderful people to touch your life. That, that is one of the good things that is happening. There's a lot of great stuff out there. We're trying to make our contribution, obviously, at PragerU. I truly believe, uh, from the bottom of my heart, that unless you study STEM, science, technology, engineering, or math, if you watched our 500 five-minute videos, that would be infinitely superior to going to college. And it's free. run the gamut tonight in terms of the things that human beings can talk about and I'm so grateful uh, to you both for your generosity of your time and your ideas. Let me just uh, end by asking one last question of each of you. Uh, I think, you know, a sort of reasonable, thoughtful person these days can't help but wonder where we're going and what will the world look like next year in 2023 and in 2033 and it will either be better or worse than what we've got, right? That's inevitable. Um, what, what, what would you say, I mean, we're gonna send a number of people home tonight. We've been talking about some very abstract, important ideas, but abstract. What would you say that we can do getting up tomorrow morning, Thursday morning? What's one little thing we could do to try to inch our way towards that better version of what we've got rather than the worse version? Amala? Mm. Yes, so uh, 
I mean, first and foremost, just having important conversations with people who are important to you, whether that's a member of your family, someone in your community, a peer of yours, just go out and talk to people about the things that are important because we have very little time to do that in this life. And uh, don't make it about changing minds or, or trying to win because uh, as important as those things are, uh, it will happen in time, I do believe. I know we talk about optimism and pessimism and, and Dennis is not really a, a fan of those words, but I am, I am a short-term pessimist and long-term optimist in this case. Uh, and just go out and have those important conversations. And really every day I wake up and I, I tend to be a very positive, bubbly person. So I'm always asking myself how much positivity I can emit to the world through my actions, to, through the things that I say and how many people People I can influence in a positive manner, uh, be it little or 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 big. Uh, so just wake up tomorrow with that with that view in mind and that goal in mind, and I promise your day will be better. Even if you know people don't act the way you think they they should act, or people don't believe the things you think they should believe, so long as you can hit the bed at night and and go, you know what. Uh, given all the circumstances in my life right now, I was a positive person who who let that out into the world and let everybody else know that that's who I am. Uh, and that's how I lead my daily life. Thank you. Well, I will say, uh, knowing Almala, I do have some degree of optimism. Just, uh, I, 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 she makes me violate my rule, just, just for the record. Uh, this is often asked to me, what, what's, what should people do? I have a number of answers, very briefly. People have to get out of the closet. Conservatives are in the closet. You can't, uh, you can't change the world. You can't do anything good if you hide. Uh, you will lose friends. You might even uh, get uh, some relatives alienated. Uh, that is their choice. You have not chosen to alienate yourself from your families. Uh, but you, you, can't, you can't hide who you are. It'll eat you up. There was uh, another remarkable young woman who uh, was Amala's age, who uh, came into my life through uh, an email she sent me. And uh, I had her on my, uh, on my show. She's a, a senior at college, and she was a junior then. So, she said that her life had been changed when, when she, uh, it's even more dramatic in a certain sense, although there's nothing as dramatic as Amala with a BLM tattoo at this conference. <laughs> I mean, that, that, but, but Amala is, is a one in a million or one in 10 million. I mean, every generation produces extraordinary people and, and I know it doesn't go to her head so I don't feel worried about saying this in her presence. She's been gifted with wisdom and, and eloquence and so on. Uh, but uh, this young woman has, is, is remarkable as well. She's a, she's a senior at Harvard. And she wrote to me that my book, Still the Best Hope, made her a conservative. I was very moved. She lives in Los Angeles by coincidence. So I invited her to come and meet me at my radio show. And then, uh, and I said to her when she visited, would you like to come on the show, not, not just sit in? And I said, but I need you to know that if you come on my show, you will be hated at Harvard, you will make enemies, 
you will lose friends and you might even alienate relatives. I don't want you to come on the show uh, if, that, if that is something you don't want to happen to you. Well, I sufficiently frightened her and she said right before a break, she said, can I, uh, can I, is it okay? I'd like to call my mother. I, was, I found that very moving, by the way. She called her mother. She came back in. She said, I'm coming on the show. Awesome. She came on the show. I then six months later had her on again. So what happened after you came on my show? She said exactly what you said would happen. And I went through two weeks of hell. Uh, I, got, I lost friends. I was vilified by some students at Harvard. And then what happened after two weeks of hell? She said, then I entered heaven. Because when I came out of the closet, all these wonderful people found me. They couldn't find me when I was in the closet. Wonderful people will find you only if you're visible. That's what I want to say to all conservatives like those that did in this audience. Get visible. Wonderful people will enter your life. And the people you lose, with all respect, it's worth losing if that's what they will lose you over. You, th because you're not, they're not your... Dennis, can you hear me? We yeah, just yeah, lost I'm your... sorry, yeah. It, it went off for a second. All I was saying was, the friends you have are, are, if you're hiding who you are, they're not your friend. They're the, they're the friends of, of a make-believe you. The authentic you must come out. And then it, it is a new world of kindred spirits. But uh, one final thing, uh, look, I, my nature is to fight. And I, don't, I know not everybody has that nature. And not everybody has to fight. But everybody has to do good in their own way. And, uh, and so put up an article on your Facebook page, an article that meant something to you. And just say, you know, this, this was thought provoking, but you're losing your country. You are. Freedom, as I began this evening, is, is a value. It, it is not a human instinct. And if you lose that value, it takes only one generation to become more like you. That, that, that's, that was my warning. Well, thank you, thank you. Thank you so very much to you both. Uh, we'll, we'll let you go shortly, but before you go, let me just, I mean, you've, you've given us tonight the greatest thing that human beings can give to each other. You've given us your ideas and your insights, and you've laid them bare. And that, that takes a lot of vulnerability and a lot of courage, uh, especially in this day and age. But I hope that what that does, every time we do one of these things, every time we have one of these conversations, that they just act as a little seed, and that each one of you takes that little seed out and it goes and multiplies 
and, and spreads and that other people can become as passionate about being free but as passionate about being human as these two are. So thank you so much, Dennis and Amala, and, and we're just so grateful that you joined us. Thank you. special prepared to say but you know I was struck at the end what Amala had to say about how we, we don't have a lot of time in life it can seem especially when you're younger it can seem like it will go on forever and sometimes the minutes just take tick away painfully but uh, my goodness in the grand scheme of things we, we don't really have a lot of time and and we have to be so thoughtful uh, with what we do with that time you know it's interesting um, probably the, the question I get, one of the most common questions I get in interviews is, what does it feel like to be so hated? <laughs> you know, I think, oh, am I? <laughs> you know, what does it feel like to be so hated? And, and after a while, and, and hearing that so much, and thinking about it so much, I just felt like it's, it's kind of freeing. Because you're not afraid anymore of what people are going to do to you, or what they're going to say to you. And, and as Amala and Dennis said, you're now who you really are for the world to see. And people can hate it or they can like it, but the bonds that you will create, the relationships that you will develop will always enrich your life more when you are real. And so thank you so much for coming tonight. I know I'm probably preaching to the choir. You all think this in virtue of being here. Um, but if you, if, if you enjoyed tonight and you wanna come back for another similar conversation, the end of the month, on March 31st, I'm going to be chatting with Robert Kennedy Jr. And, um, yeah, you know, I've chatted with him. I've been on Zoom calls, and we've emailed back and forth a little bit. And uh, he, he always has surprising and interesting things to say. I, I think it must be a bit tiring to be in the mind of Robert Kennedy because I think he's just thinking all the time. He's, I think, a bit of a tortured thinker, but I'm so grateful that he's continuing the work that he's doing, um, you know, fighting against all odds, not just professionally, but personally as well, and he's being so generous with his time to come and chat with us. And So I hope many of you will consider coming back, and thank you for coming tonight.